Luke's Gospel, 18th chapter. Luke's Gospel, 18th chapter. Begin reading at verse 9 and read through verse 14. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, excuse me, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Help us now in these moments, Father, by your Spirit, we rightly see and hear, understand and apply this your word. Lord, if we are in need of repentance, we pray you grant it. If we have not trusted you, may we be brought to that faith. For we pray all this in the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We've been looking at our proposed confession of faith. We've considered several different things up to this point. Scripture, God, man, salvation, justification, adoption, the free offer of salvation, and even regeneration. And today, we come to the article on repentance and faith. This actually is the first article in the confession, which emphasizes something that we are to do. Now, while the previous articles include our actions, they are primarily explanatory in terms of who and what. This article puts a duty upon us to do two things, repent and believe. The responsive reading this morning, the reflection on Paul's words to the Ephesian elders included this statement testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith. Here's what our statement says. We believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties and also inseparable graces. They are produced in our souls by the regenerating Spirit of God who convinces us of our sin, guilt, danger, and helplessness and of the way of salvation by Christ. We then turn to God with confession, repentance, and a plea for mercy. At the same time, we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone as the all-sufficient Savior. 
Again, I find that statement so comforting and encouraging and, and instructive in that it does tell us these are inseparable graces. Where there is repentance, there is always faith. And where there is genuine faith, there is always repentance. You must never separate those things. Far too much modern evangelism has no note of repentance, but merely an exhortation to believe. Now, you must believe. But you cannot savingly believe unless you've repented, nor have you genuinely repented unless at the same time you believe. It is the proverbial two sides of the same coin. These must never be divided. This 18th chapter of Luke is showing us the last things in Christ's public ministry prior to his journey to Jerusalem. This particular parable is only found in Luke. Ligon Duncan points out, he knows, Jesus knows, they'll view the Pharisee as the righteous man and the tax collector as the sinner and thus assume the Pharisee is the star of the show, the hero of the story, the good guy. And the tax collector is the bad guy. But we've got it upside down. Pay attention to how those, those two verses 9 and 10 open the story for us. To some who were confident of their own righteousness, thought they were righteous, treated others with contempt, he tells the story. You see, folks, we love, we love our lists of accomplishments. We love our moral resumes, our religious checklists. We love that stuff. And one of the dangers, truthfully, in the matter of personal devotion to Christ can often be that it turns into a self-congratulatory exercise. Now, maybe we're not so gauche as to actually keep a sheet. But in our mind, Bible reading, yep, did that this morning. Even read a little extra. It was hard. It was Chronicles, right? And I prayed. Yes, I did. payday I wrote my check church or I'm sorry that's a little antiquated now isn't it I got online and gave I even read ahead on the Sunday school lesson I got some questions for that teacher he may not be ready for We love our accomplishments and our comparisons to others. But you see, salvation comes to those who truly understand their status. And we have that understanding. Repentance and faith come out of that. First consideration. Soul-destroying conceit. The two men go up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, 
the other a tax collector. And now we hear from the, the Pharisee. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Now, some will note, if you look in the margin on the ESV or a footnote, it could be translated, he prayed to himself or possibly prayed about himself. All of those are admissible as far as translating the text. I, God, I thank you. And nothing wrong with thanksgiving, right? If he just said, Lord, I thank you, he'd have been all right. I thank you that I am not like other men. And here's where it goes off the rails. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, we're not sure if in Jesus' mind in the parable that the Pharisee is listing the sins in order of worst to least bad or from least to the worst, whatever the case is, he's glad he's not like that. And then he promotes, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Boom. Now how... How do you find yourself in this position of having this soul-destroying conceit? Well, first, there's no conception of God's holiness and His own sinfulness. Notice what it says. He stands by Himself, prayed thus, and the image here of standing by himself has an image as well that he was drawing near. Now, understand the way the temple's set up, normally there would be a crowd nearby. Anytime there was a common prayer time, the sacrifices, whatever's being done. And this man finds a way to get by himself. Well, about the only way to get by yourself was to draw closer to the Holy of Holies. Because everybody knew there was lines you didn't cross. Well, this fellow decides he can get close. He stands by himself. There's no petition, only pride. There's no begging, only bragging. He thanked God as the Psalms would encourage us to do, but he doesn't thank God for what God has done for him. Rather, he praises himself for what he's done for God. He doesn't think about the awesome holiness of the God to whom he presents himself. My friend, hear this and hear it well. There ought to be a reverential fear if you think very long or very hard about God based on the text of Scripture. God did not soften in some way between Old and New Testament. God has not changed. He is still holy. I remind you that the vision that nearly destroys Isaiah in Isaiah 6 is the same vision virtually that the Apostle John sees 
in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. This has not changed. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. An easy familiarity towards God can betray a hardened heart. God becomes secondary to religious performance. Remember, my friend, with whom you deal when you go before God. Be careful of unworthy thoughts. When you see the holiness of God and you realize the depth of your own sin, you tremble to draw near except through the finished work of Christ. The conceit this man has is first of all, no realization of the greatness of the holiness of God nor of his own sinfulness. But it also shows up another way, this soul-destroying conceit. Contempt for others. Evidently, he'd seen the other man. I think he was glad he was there, although he held him in contempt. This is G. Campbell Morgan said, He was a dark and despicable sinner, revealing by contrast the brilliance of the Pharisee's own position. So he doesn't only just go to pray and then do this comparison. Lord, I thank you, I'm not like. And look at his list again. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this. We're not sure how far away the tax collector is, but one can almost envision Jesus telling the parable and pointing off this tax collector. One of the worst things we ever do, my friend, is to compare ourselves to other believers or even worse, to compare ourselves to folks who are not Christian. You see, we, we tend to compare ourselves because it lets us feel superior to the common sinners out there. We're not robbers or adulterers or wicked. We're not rioters. We're not doing all these horrid things going on all around us. Well, I know I'm better than so-and-so. I don't sin like they do. Why do they even bother to try to be religious? Maybe they'll get straightened out one of these days. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like them. Oh, friend, Stop, stop right there. For all you know, you may very well be worse than they are. Remember, Jesus will say to religious leaders, on the outside, you look pretty good. You're basically a whitewashed tomb. You can even make a crypt look nice if you paint it pretty. Inside, you're full of dead men's bones. This soul-destroying conceit doesn't consider God, doesn't consider himself, looks at others with contempt, and is confident in his religious performance. Now think about this. Pharisees, and remember the word Pharisee initially meant the separated ones. They're just trying 
to pursue holiness. That's what's on their mind. They want to pursue holiness. By the time Jesus comes along, this had become rather ritualized. Pharisee fasted every Monday and Thursday, typically. The law only required fasting one day each year on Day of Atonement. So they had taken a one-day-a-year fast and turned it into a twice-weekly ritual. The Pharisee tithed on everything, even things he didn't have to. The problem for this man was not that he did these things. They were good things to do. The problem was he bragged about his works. He trusted his works as being so pleasing to God that God loved him for his deeds. What can we say about the Pharisee? He'd have been a member in good standing in most churches, including our own. He's a better religious performer than many of you. He fasted twice a week, and some of you haven't fasted once in your life. He tithed on everything he got, and some of you haven't tithed on anything. Or trying to figure out how you can avoid it. You know what is the most telling as you read this? He mentions God once. And he mentions himself five times. Belittling and taking sides against others becomes his self-saving strategy. One brother put it this way, in every one of us there's a Pharisee. All of us are but too prone to regard ourselves as good and others are wicked. Therefore, we must take heed, especially in our prayers, that we do not become self-exalted. How great is the need that we should continually pray to be kept truly humble. C.S. Lewis is the one that observed that pride is essentially competitive. It gets no, it gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next person. Piper points out, this guy's not presented actually as a legalist, one who tries to earn his salvation exactly. One thing is the issue. This man was morally upright. He was religiously devout. He believed God had made him, so he gave thanks for it. And that's what he looked to and trusted in for his righteousness before God, for his justification. And he was dead wrong. He looked at those things that God's going, wow. God tell you, son, good job. Everybody else out there messing this thing up and you're part of that top 2%. Come on in to the kingdom. This is self-destructive, soul-destroying conceit. Now, let's look secondly at what soul-saving confidence looks like. But, <laughs> great place for a conjunction, verse 13, right? Great, great place for the break. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, Be merciful to me, 
a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'll tell you, that man went down to his house justified. He realized God's holiness. How can you tell? Where does he stand? Far off. He doesn't run away, but he's not being presumptive. I'm not going to get too close to the holy of holies. He was at least a little bit familiar with the story of Uzzah and the ark, right? He won't even look up to heaven. And this goes with the next. Once you realize how holy God is, you come with humility. When you realize the holiness of God, you're reverent and properly fearful of coming to Him. And that realization, that awakening to the holiness of God leads to two things. Now some of you are wondering, how am I getting around to repentance and faith? Here you go. Because the next thing that happens in this man is repentance and faith. How do I say that? Well, what is the first thing he says? God, have mercy on me. And what does he describe himself as? Sinner. The Pharisee apparently did not see himself as a sinner. The tax collector has no other identity before a holy God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Both men begin with the same word, God, but this man literally calls himself not a sinner, but the sinner. It's almost like he sees himself as the only sinner living. He had no time to consider the Pharisee. He had no thoughts about other people's sins. He was completely absorbed in the realization of his own. And my friend, this can I tell you that just understanding that will bring you miles down the road in Christian discipleship, understanding. Give you another little aside on that. It will make your marriage sweeter when you realize that you're a sinner. This is free. Not anywhere in the notes. How many times has the conflict in your marriage been the source of a problem because you were looking at your spouse's sin and not your own? You spent your time analyzing how they could do different, how they should do better. Why are we doing this again? Why is this still an issue? Haven't we talked about this before? And on and on and on. And before long, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like my spouse. Suspect yourself first. You see, I read that and I can't help but think about the Apostle Paul saying, this mercy was shown to me, the worst of sinners. God have mercy on me, a sinner. Humility is harder. Daryl Bach said this, brilliant. It's harder to discuss because it doesn't discuss itself. Right? That's the problem talking about humility. There's always a danger you're going to mess it up. It simply gets out there and serves, often with sacrifice. It doesn't claim rights. It tries to do what is right. It doesn't brag about integrity. It displays it. 
Sometimes it's easy to miss what doesn't point to itself. Follow that? It can be easy to miss what doesn't point to itself, and humility doesn't point to itself. It just goes on doing. God sees the humble heart and lifts it up in honor. This is Jesus' challenge. Friend, remove the plank from your own eye before you try to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We are sinful. We must go to God with our sin. Bonner put it this way, it's with our sins we go to God, for we have nothing else to go with that we can call our own. Right? I mean, it's a good thing Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We're qualified. Every last one of us. Now, how am I coming to repentance? My friend, he pleads for mercy because he can call himself a sinner. He needs mercy. He recognizes his sin. And out of that, there should be repentance. There's one word that appears throughout the Scripture in the New Testament for uh, repentance. And you don't need to know the Greek word, but just simply this. It literally means change your mind. You're changing your mind. What are you changing your mind about? Well, you're changing your mind about God. He is holy. He is worthy. He's offended by my sin, and I've got to deal with him. You're changing your mind about yourself. I'm sinful. I deserve judgment. You're changing your mind about sin. It's bad. It's damning. It's destructive, and it's opposed to all the holiness of God. And it changes your mind about righteousness. It's what I need. It's what God demands, and it's the very thing I do not have. God be merciful to me, a sinner. But you see, the text isn't just about repentance, it's also about faith. God have what? Mercy. Now why would the tax collector pray like that unless he was a man whose heart could sing the 32nd Psalm? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. He could do it because he trusted the promise of God. God will be merciful. Cry to him, he will hear you. Repent, turn to him, he will show you kindness. The one man is justifying himself before God. The other man was not asking for justification. He was asking for mercy. The man who justified himself remained unjustified. The man who sought the compassion of God went to his own house justified. He pled for mercy. Now why hammer away at this? Of course, the question comes, what do you mean when you say faith? Now, there's a word that has become quite malleable over the years. What's faith? Here's the place, and I've used it before. I'll use it again because one day you'll learn it, and it'll just be autopilot for you, all right? The Reformers describe faith as having three things. Knowledge, assent, and trust. For you Latin, Latin files out there, I guess it would be uh, notitia, 
a census in fiducia. What did he mean? What are the reformers saying? First, you have to know about the gospel. You have to know you're a sinner and that Jesus is a Savior. You have to have knowledge first. You can't be saved in ignorance. You have to know something. The first part of faith is knowing the truth. Secondly, you have to assent to it. You have to say, that is true. But knowing it and affirming that it is true will not by themselves save you. It is only as you go the next step, this is my hope and my confidence. I trust in Christ. If I am lost, I will be lost trusting Christ. Now you say, why would you say it that way? Because that elucidates the nature of this trust. The only hope I have to be saved is that I put my hope in Him. And if that's not enough, I am doomed. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, please understand, I'm not saying you have to understand all those aspects. If I say to you, repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you do that, praise the Lord. Okay? I don't want you sitting here trying, okay, how do I jump? Do I know? Do I ascend? I, I, I tell you what, don't worry about all that. Run as fast as you can to Him. Run from your sin, run to Him. You can figure out the details later. Run. And it is staggering what happens in this. Spurgeon related the story that a man was heard praying at a prayer meeting, pleading in louder tones than usual. He was a sailor, and his voice was pitched, as he said, to the tune of the roaring billows. A lady whispered to her friend, is that Captain so-and-so? Yes, said the other. Why do you ask? Because the last time I heard that voice, its swearing made my blood run cold. The man's oaths were beyond measure terrible. Can it be the same man? Someone observed, go ask him. The lady timidly said, are you cap the same captain that I heard swearing in the street outside my house? Well, he said, I am the same person, and yet, thank God, I am not. Why do we talk about those two things? Because the message is we proclaim Christ. And we proclaim Christ to sinners. What is the sinner to do? Repent and believe. It's the heart of the gospel. All the things we've talked about, my friend, and it is good for us to think about these things. It is a good thing to think about Scripture and who God is and the sovereignty of God. It is a good thing to think about what the message of the gospel is and we need to respond to it it is a comforting thing to think about justification and adoption but my friend when it comes down to the rubber meeting the road issue when you're meeting somebody in the state of their need what they need to hear is jesus christ has died for sinners you must one day answer to god for your sin, and that God is holy, and He will not excuse your sin, and He will not let you hide 
You can make no excuse before this God. If you know you're a sinner, run to Jesus in repentance and faith. He will save you. We affirm what we believe in this. God resists the proud. He will never accept you if you come proudly holding on to your dignity, citing your sacrifices and service. This is a salvation that's only for sinners. Hear these words as we draw this to a close. In Luke 5, Jesus will say, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What did we read in this text? This man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. And the fearful words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Oh, hear me, my friend. The last thing you want to hear on Judgment Day is, I never knew And you don't have to hear those words. If you cry out now, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And you're turning from the sin in your life. Please, when I say that, you're not making a pledge to be perfect because you're not going to do it. You're turning from that way of life to live under the Lordship of Christ. And he will save you. And Christian, isn't this really the rest of the Christian life? Christian, I pray that your prayers often come out, God be merciful to me. I'm still a mess. Not, Lord, I know it helps you out that you don't have to forgive me as much as these other people. Now, Repentance toward God, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the entry into the kingdom. But may I tell you, that is the model of kingdom living from that point forward. Still repenting, still trusting. This is the Christian life. May God grant it to us. Let's pray. Father, I